All right. If you are just, you know, blissfully letting your iTunes playlist play, you might be wondering, oh, this is this is probably a, just an author's dozen episode. It's probably just where uh, Paul Yoder tries to write 12 books in 12 months and podcast about it, which is what this normal feed is. Well, are, are you ever going to be embarrassed when you discover that over the next four days, I'm going to be releasing uh, a fourth of a book every day. And guess what? It's an audiobook. Ooh, yeah. Now, if you've been following Authors Dozen, um, you know that Hollow is available to read for free on my website, www.authorsdozen.com. Um, if you haven't been following along and somebody shared this with you because it's a free audiobook and it's super cool, then let me break down what Hollow is about. It's a fantasy book. It is probably best for uh, adults or young adults. And um, it's got a little bit of, uh, it's got a few swears, got a few violences, but let me just read you the back cover. So if you were already going to read this book, I would, I would just close my ears for exactly uh, 30 seconds. Um, but if you are still needing some convincing, here's a quick sort of pitch of what the book is about. In a world where slaves look no different than their masters, Turner hopes to outgrow his humble beginnings, to become a wolf rider like his long-lost father. Then his village vanishes into thin air. With hopes shattered and on the run from slave hunters, Turner seeks answers from his missing father. With the help of a peasant who thinks like a noble, an eccentric criminal, and giant beasts from unexplored continents, Turner finds a revolution brewing that promises justice for all and mercy for none. So yeah, if that sounds interesting to you, um, Happy trails. Uh, I'm going to read it for you. Slight disclaimer. I am recording this uh, from my home due to coronavirus and uh, I've got like some blankets around me and I have a slightly squeaky floor. And um, so, yeah, I also am not like a professional audiobooker. And so guess what? Uh, it's free uh, and it sounds like it's free, but uh, I, I'm going to try my best. I'm not going to stumble over my words or say, uh, during the reading because I actually edit it. Um, and yeah, so here's a quick disclaimer. Um, you're about to read the first draft of a novel called Hollow. I wrote and hastily revised Hollow in a single month. Um, it's not a rough draft and its story is to my knowledge coherent. However, Hollow is not the book that it could become with editing and revision. I choose to publish it in its rough form for several reasons. Reason number one, uh, it was written in a month and the rough draft displays what was accomplished within that period. It was written while I held a full-time job and created a scripted podcast out of no place. Um, I believe that the rough draft could inspire others who feel the desire to write a novel but don't feel like they have the resources. Um, reason number two, Hollow was written in a month, and the rough draft displays the flaws inherent in a first draft. And so if you read Hollow and think, gosh, that didn't go anywhere, or gee, that character seems underdeveloped, uh, that's, that's the first draft. And writers are often disappointed when their first work does not measure up to the works they idolize. I believe that publishing the first draft tempers expectations and admits to the flaws that all storytellers face. That said, I really like Hollow. Um, and the reason that I'm putting it out right now, reason number three, um, the rough draft accompanies a podcast called Author's Dozen, where I aim to explore the boundaries of creativity and sanity by writing 12 books in 12 months. Uh, and you can check out authorsdozen.com if you'd like to subscribe or support the free work that I'm doing. Um, I would really appreciate if you pass this thing on because it's a really cool book the way that it is. And it's also free. It only took me like a month to write it. So heck, I figure I'll just give it away for free in both a book format and in an audio format, which is what the podcast's in. I don't know. And this is maybe just pride speaking, but I really think this is like a really fun time. And I think that you will enjoy what you listen to. And any pals that you want to share this with will um, go through about five and a half hours of rip-roaring adventure. And it's just a really good time. I think the book has something to say, too. I think it has something to say about hope and 
um, good intentions gone awry. And I think uh, the podcast that goes with it has a lot to say too. I think it's really good. And I think that reading this book, either in audio or uh, a ebook format, is gonna give you some more insight into who I am, what I do, and uh, yeah, I just hope you enjoy. So um, right here, I'm gonna start uh, putting in the edited story and we'll go for about an hour. And then I'm gonna release uh, over the next couple of days, parts two, three, and four of the audiobook. It's all gonna be on the same podcast feed, so just stay tuned. And um, if you like it, if you appreciate it, please, please, please pass it on, rate it, review it, and help others enjoy it. If you didn't enjoy it, um, you can leave a comment. I really would love to see at the end of the show, just like posting it on social media and people being like, oh, hey, then this happened. I was really sad or I was really excited or I thought it was kind of lazy or whatever. Um, I want to hear from you. So we're going to be having that conversation uh, on the social media pages, um, mostly on Facebook, some on Instagram. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be posting it around. So if you have thoughts, questions, uh, concerns, you can go ahead and send them to me on those comments and we can have a convo, a conversation. Um, and with that said, that's enough said. Now, enjoy. Hollow, Chapter 1 This is a test, Turner told himself. The divine spirits were looking over his shoulder, surely, wondering if he would resign himself to sleep. The divines wondered, surely, if a boy of sixteen years could work like a man of thirty from sunup to sundown and still find time to educate himself. I can, Turner told himself. It was the first day of harvest. They'd eaten sweet apple, apples and unleavened bread as even the bakers were out in the field slaving away. It was a good enough meal for the others, but Turner had seen what the Diaz ate. He wanted more. So read, Turner thought. Better yourself. The others can work this soil until the sky has swept a storm, but I'll rise, surely. Read, said Turner's mother. Turner blinked. He realized that he'd been thinking about reading rather than reading. I am, I am, Turner replied. The J to L edition of the encyclopedia did not make for heart-racing drama. Descriptions of jaguars and leopards could be found here, but those mounts had never occupied Turner's fantasies. Men who rode cats into battle were only along for the ride. Read aloud, said Turner's mother. Never waste a night of bright clouds. The clouds overhead contained something astrologers called sustained current. Folk in the Grange called the clouds sky hearth. Peering upward, Turner could see the idea behind both names. The monstrous towers of vapor hit a kind of lightning that did not flash, but floated, sustained, like cotton burning from the inside. Enough to read by. Read, child, said Turner's mother. Turner fixed his eyes on the page. He began to speak in the deliberate, clean way of speech his mother took while reading. And Turner's mother, Sophia, began to nag her boy as if he couldn't fit a week of labor into a single day. A pillow bounced off of Turner's head. Turner spun, miming a false indignation. He scooped up the knit pillow and tossed it back. Sophia batted it aside as she sprang to the edge of her bed. She wore a mischievous smirk on her rounded cheeks. Too late, Turner raised his hands in defense. Most boys Turner's age would wore their hair short. Turner's hair was just long enough to be impractical. That was the point, of course. Turner's look was supposed to imply that he didn't work 12 hours a day in the groves and fields. He was proud of his hair. So, whenever Sophia wanted to mess with her only son, she knew to mess with the scalp. By the time Turner had escaped Sophia's grasp, his coal-black hair was tufted and tangled like lamb's wool. You said I could wear it long, Turner complained. Off to borrow the comb. He wasn't able to hide his, the genuine frustration in his voice. So Sophia's smirk flattened. I'm sorry, hun. You know Faye gives me guff every time I ask her for it. That's her way. Too bad for you, Faye's the only girl in the Grange with long hair, Sophia said. In the dim light of the clouds, Turner could barely see the stubble on a pale scalp, aside from the Diaz. You want to ask them for the comb? Sophia's smirk returned. They probably have a comb for every one of their daughters. They probably have a comb for every little hair on their pretty little heads. Pretty, yes. Turner was glad for the dim light. His mother couldn't see him blush. Sophia picked up the knit pillow. Sheep's wool was expensive, so they'd cut their supply with dog and human hair and sold the dividend. 
The pillows itched, but Sophia never seemed to mind. When we were slaves, Sophia said, we didn't even own our own hair. Once a month, we get sheared by the Dia family. We used to say we were only renting our scalps. Now we only rent the farm. Turner began smoothing his hair. Are you mad that I don't cut it? No, Sophia said. That's what your father fought and bled for. For hair? For your right to wear it. To own it. To own yourself. Sophia pointed at the book. So read. Be educated. Never waste bright clouds. Never waste your freedom. It needn't be spoken aloud to be said. Turner pointed to the book sticking out underneath Sophia's covers. When do I get to read that? Sophia shook her head. She lifted her mattress and stowed the old journal underneath. Turner pointed to the open pages. Leopard riders are basically useless outside of dense forests. Now, I can either wait until volume W through Z, or I can learn about wolf riders from an expert. His mother's teeth shone in the dark. You know plenty already. But not what's in your journal. And you won't while I'm here. Turner returned to his pages with a sigh. He covered two paragraphs before his mind wandered again. It was his second time going through his encyclopedia. The reading had once been new and thrilling, each page a revelation. The revelation was now repeated, a dim echo. Turner wanted more. Ken, Turner stopped himself. May I use the outhouse? If you promise not to fall in, I'll promise no such thing. We'll fish you out when we sluice for topsoil. Sophia lay down in her cot and pressed her neck into her pillow. You and all the other little sh- A sound like cannon tore through the house, masking Sophia's words. Light filled the room. Turner looked outside. One of the sky hearths had broken. If one lightning strike looked like a branch, a hearthfall looked like a thicket. Dozens of lightning bolts rained upon the horizon, and for a moment, the sky was as bright and blue as day. Sophia waited until the noise died down. Be careful. No one's ever died by hearthfall. But they've disappeared. Stories. Turner unlatched the door and stepped outside. The weather was almost always temperate on the Kirish Isthmus. Tonight was no exception. The air was vaguely thick and slow, steady wind passed through the lungs of the apple grove. Turner filled his... Sorry. The air was vaguely thick and a slow, steady wind passed through the leaves of the apple grove. Turner filled his lungs with the sickly sweet sweet scent of rotten fruit and began to run. If he was quick, he could cast a prayer to the divines and return before Sophia got suspicious. Turner's shoes seemed to barely graze the dirt road as he ran. The Grange usually saw warm days and cool nights, even now in winter. Turner had known so all his life. He hadn't remembered why until a few days ago when Dia Eve had snuck him one of her encyclopedia editions. The binding said J to L. Turner had, sli- sti- sti- ah. Turner had skipped straight to K. Kiresh, the fertile lane, the crossroads of continents, the dark range. Turner had known that his home lay between the North Bay and South Ocean. What he hadn't remembered was that those bodies of water cooled and warmed the slower than land, and that this property of water led to cool breezes in the day and leftover heat in the evening. The Kiresh Isthmus stretched like a pipe between lung-shaped continents to the northeast and southwest, but it was the ocean that caused the land to breathe. And to bleed, Turner thought. He'd stopped reading the entry on Kiresh when it came to slavery. The encyclopedia was written two years before Turner had been born. It had been written before the war to describe a land of perpetual bounty, worked by many and enjoyed by few. Turner slowed to walk as he approached the graves of the divines. This was holy ground, supposedly. Turner didn't know if he believed in the power of the divines, but he would need all the help he could get if he wanted to escape his humble lot. Turner paused just outside of the graveyard. He listened to the breeze and the leaves. Some claimed to hear the divine. Sophia claimed that those claimants were liars. Someone's wrong, Turner thought. Someone's right. It was worth a shot. Turner sank to his knees. He walked using his knees. He tried not to scrape dirt on his pant legs. Any marks would tell Sophia that he'd been casting prayers rather than relieving himself. Divines, he whispered. He didn't know if volume had any effect on the divines, but he repeated himself just a bit louder. Divines, I... Turner stopped himself. If the divines were noble, they probably spoke and raised Ulican. Turner began to rephrase his request in the staid language of the old poets. Turner is here against the wishes of Sophia. 
Please forgive Turner the caution of Turner. Though a divine's tombstones bore no names, the size of one boulder indicated the lengths to which someone had gone to place a divine's importance. Though a divine's tombstone bore no names, the size of one's boulder indicated the lengths to which someone had gone to mark a divine's importance. Turner kneeled his way closer to the largest tombstone. It was white granite as large as a pony adorned with dozens of small, smooth pebbles. Turner almost cursed. He'd forgotten a stone. Turner didn't have time to look for one. He looked to his right and saw a small black tombstone with a single pebble on top. The pebble was half black, half white. It reminded Turner of a globe that he has kept with its southern and unexplored hemisphere unmapped. It was beautiful. Forgive Turner, Turner said as he sheepishly took a pedal. Turner is bad at religion. Turner closed his eyes and prayed over the pebble as he approached the huge tombstone. Divine has died in service. Divine, return in service. He prayed with all his heart. He tried to believe in the divine beneath the white granite. Grant Turner wealth that Turner may escape the debts of Turner. Grant Turner strength to work hard and earn coin and earn his sardi... Um, the redemption debt of Turner and Sophia, that Turner and Sophia may finally be free. Grant Turner skill and ability so that Turner may be wealthy and marry Dia Eve. Turner felt a wealth. Turner felt a warmth in his heart. Was that a feeling of an unanswered prayer? Or was it love? He brought the half-white pebble to his lips and kissed it. He tasted salt. He poured all his hope into the stone. Please, please. Please, just a little more. Please let me marry Dia Eve. Turner opened his eyes. He'd used the common dialect again. Turner was about to start the prayer over when he saw something behind the nearest apple tree. Turner's mouth hung open. Turner? asked the figure. He's in earshot. He heard. Turner hid the pebble in the grass and behind the stone. You were praying to marry the master's daughter? I... Turner tried to shield his face. Turner is not... Uh, sought it. What are you shaking your head for? I see you, Turner. The man's face took on form as he stepped into the shadow of the trees. Smoker... The man's face took on form as he stepped from the shadow of the trees. Smoker was in his middle age, but looked ancient. His face was dominated by a purple scar in the shape of a dripping puddle. The eye in the middle of Smoker's scar was cloudy and dead. A splash of boiling oil, some said. More than an accident, said others. Smoker pointed a weathered finger at the bright clouds overhead. Sky hearts are out. I can see you. Clear as day. You didn't hear right, Turner said. He was past trying to avoid pronouns and contractions. He was in danger. I was praying to carry Dia Eve. And what in hellfire does that mean? Turner found himself smoothing his hair. A nervous habit. I, okay, but please, Smoker, don't. I ought to. Turner couldn't breathe. The scarred corner of Smoker's lips turned up. It was the first time Turner had ever seen Smoker smile. I ought to tell, said the evil old man. Smoker turned and began to run. Turner sprang up and gave chase. Holy ground be damned. Chapter 2 <clears throat> Turner was surprised at Smoker's pace. He had mistaken the man's ugliness for weakness. A stupid mistake, coming from a farmhand. Turner hissed between breaths. Smoker, please, wait. You and your mama, always so superior. Smoker, please. They were closing on the outhouse now. Up the hill, Turner could see the outline of billowing smoke. Please, Turner panted. Not the big house. Why not? Smoker's voice was bereft of labor. Don't you want dear Dia Eve to know of your ache? Smoker looked over his shoulder. Unless... Unless what? Smoker slowed but motioned for Turner to stay away. Turner obliged. The unscarred portions of Smoker's face were dotted with sweat. Either Turner was imagining things, or the clouds were especially bright this evening. Unless, Smoker said, you help me with something. Tomorrow, Turner said, my mother will wonder if I'm gone. Your mother will be happy for a moment to herself. Smoker bared his teeth, but not in joy. A boy your age takes his time when he's all by himself, especially when he's in love. Turner's face burned with a mix of shame and rage. What do you want? Will you help me? Maybe. 
I want to sneak into the big house. Turner shook his head. That's death, Smoker. Thieving. I won't steal anything. I'm the cook. I've got an excuse to enter. I've got the key to the kitchen and everything. Entering without permission is death. They'll shoot you. Your replacement will spit-roast you. What does it matter to you? Marcus is in the capital for business and won't be back for months. You won't need to do anything. I just need someone to help me operate the dumb... Smoker was interrupted by a wall of sound and light. The boom rocked through the air like a sudden wind. The light was like dawn, another hearthfall. Tonight's storms were the worst Turner had ever heard. Turner stared into the man's good eye. Why, tell me your plan, Smoker pointed at Turner. Now we both have each other's secret. We've got leverage on one another. What if I tell someone? Then I'll tell someone. I'll say you're lying. And Dia Eve will think you don't love her. She'll think you're weak. Damn, well, what if I warn the Dias while you're inside? They'll wonder how I got that far and what you're doing while I did. Turner groaned. He shook his head. Mom always said you were a sod sucker. If anyone knows sucking, it's, it happened on instinct. A static sting rang up Turner's knuckles. Smoker was sprawled out on the ground, cradling his nose. Damnation, Smoker moaned. Did Soph teach you that jab? If she had, Turner muttered, you'd be asking that question out of the other side of your skull. Turner chuckled. What a dumb thing to say. Turner blushed. Talk about my mother again and... Turner paused. And I'll never say anything again? Always the same tough lines from you boys. What if you killed me? I hear they're using the slave cages for murderers. Worse, you'd owe Dia Marcus for the loss of property. Sophia would have all three of our debts on her hands. The boy and the man stared at one another. Both knew that there was no other choice but to work together. Turner offered Smoker to hand up. Sing, what's this about? Smoker refused the hand and pulled himself off the ground. It's about the ledger. What about it? None of your business. I just want to look, that's all. Turner scowled. I'd rather you rob the place. The Diaz are private people. Listen, Smoker said. Knowing the big house's finances helps every one of us. You, me, and your mother. You, most of all. Think of the bargaining power, Smoker said. He closed one of his nostrils and hocked blood from the other. Damnation. Think. If Dia Marcus is rich, we could hope for his generosity, but if he's poor... He's not poor. But if he's poorer than he lets on, we can renegotiate our redemption debts. Tell him he can cash in earlier at a lower rate. Smoker spat, then ground the spit into the grass with his boot. Like a loan, almost. Mom and I can erase our debt in two years. But after that, you own nothing. Your land, your house, even your damn outhouse is rented from Marcus. Dear Marcus, Turner corrected. Smoker cursed. Honorifics, were you serious back there? Do you ever want the chance to be anything other than embarrassment to the master's daughter? They stared at one another. Smoker's clouded eye glistened in the cloud light. Turner thought of Dia Eve. She was so kind, so lofty and carefree. He was a creature of the dirt. He looked back where he'd come. He was worth more than this. The son of a wolf rider should be above scraping in the dark with disgraced cooks. Hope. It's worth a shot. Turner sighed. He nodded. Smoker gut-checked Turner just to watch the boy flinch. Minutes later, they were climbing the hill to the big house. Chapter 3 The big house loomed in the night and seemed to glow under the light of the clouds. They approached without cover, normalcy their only disguise. Most Diaz came from the Oluk Republic. Diamarcus was a different matter. His family had lived in Kirash for generations. As if to make up for that fact, Diamarcus's home was, if travelers were to be believed, more Olukan than Oluk. A whitewashed portico wrapped her like a frilly dress around the entire building, held aloft by vine-covered columns five arm lengths in circumference. Yet, there were hints of Kirish culture scattered about. Here, a stretched cowhide, there, a bench made of wood softened and bent in Kirishite style. Turner, at least, hoped that these Diaz had gone a little native. It might make Diamarcus more willing to accept a native son-in-law. Smoker produced his key. If anyone asks, you're helping me empty the slop. Why didn't you empty it after dinner? Because I wanted an excuse to return at midnight. 
Clever sodsucker. Turner thought that he and Smoker would have been friends had the man contained a capacity for friendship. They descended a sunken staircase, then unlocked and unlatched the kitchen door. Smoker tried to close the door behind them, but Turner braced it open. If we were getting slop, he noted, we'd leave the door propped open. And we'd probably give a damn... And we'd probably have the damn wagon ready, too, Smoker hissed. The pretense is pretense. Nevertheless, he let Turner use the doorstop before they moved ahead. The house servant's work went on below the floorboards of the big house. The kitchen used one of the home's six fireplaces, so it had to be on the building's perimeter. How are we getting up? Turner asked. Dumb waiter. Don't be so hard on yourself, Turner joked. The Diaz had called him Smoker after a single overcooked meal, and the servants had kept the name alive. The servants had names for Turner as well, names Turner only heard secondhand and accidentally. Smoker pointed to a large platform near the fireplace. An elevator for food. It rises like a table out of the serving room floor. When you get up there, you'll have to pull the lever and send it down and up again. should be clearly labeled. Well, aren't you lucky I can read? If only you were mute as well. Turner mounted the platform. He tried to calm his nerves as he lay down. There was a large slab of wood just an arm's length from his face. I've never been up there, Turner admitted. Mute, Smoker repeated. He pulled a lever, and Turner felt the click of clockwork vibrating behind his back. The table began to rise. The overhead wood slab did not move. For a terrible second, Turner wondered if he was going to be pressed flat between the surfaces, his body rendered into cider and pulp. Then the slab parted down the middle and folded away like flower petals and sun. The table pushed through and came to rest in another kitchen-like area. This room, Turner guessed, was for plating and arranging the food from Smoker's kitchen. That was Faye's job. Faye claimed that she could make even Smoker's meals look good. Every utensil and plate looked to be plated with silver. Turner stared at a... Ah. Turner started at a hint of movement to his right. Looking over, he thought he saw a Dia, a noble, masterly figure. With a mixture of relief and embarrassment, Turner realized that he'd only seen his own reflection in the silver platter. It was in the embarrassment that Turner found a curious question. Why had he mistaken himself for a noble? He was Kiresh. Certainly Kiresheids and Ullikans were of the same race in a world where even races were difficult to parse. Turner's own father was supposedly an Ullican. The difference was not in appearance, but in bearing and nature. Turner banished the thought. Looks meant little. He was in the big house without permission. He was in danger. When Smoker rose on the dumbwaiter, he had his finger pressed to his lips. With nothing but gesture and example, Smoker led Turner through the serving room and into the dining room. Turner pressed his hand to his mouth to keep himself from gasping. There were dozens of gold-embossed reclining couches, gathered in groups of three and four. Olikins dined while lying on their sides. Turner couldn't imagine how. He'd never seen the supposedly opulent Dia's feasts. Even while dining, it seemed, the Olikin Republic felt a need to expand. Turner had never seen this room, but he'd heard the stories. Balls had been held here before the war, all bright with music and dancing and the promise of independence. The Diaz and other nobles had told themselves tales of inevitable glory. They spoke of reopening the war between the continents and covering the world in the blood of Ul and Luke. They'd sung of freedom. Rumor was, those parties had never ended. No matter that the parties were secret, their songs sung in whispers over the gold and silver plates. No matter the outcome, the intent was the same. They passed into the atrium. The clouds outside cast long, eerie spotlights through the windows and onto the floor. Smoker mounted the tall staircase. Turner kept his eyes on the swivel, trusting Smoker to lead the way. His nerves screamed. Being caught in the big house would earn him a bullet. He didn't want to think about what would happen if he was caught upstairs when the Dia daughters slept. Smoker paused at the top of the stairs next to a long banister. Turner wondered if the man had finally lost his nerve, then realized that he was staring at a locker as wide and as tall as a man. Smoker crept toward it and took the locker's padlock in his hand. Turner looked down the hall. His mind went to a strange place. He could walk just a few steps down that hall, unlatch Dia Eve's door, 
She might sit up in bed, sleepily coo, Who's there? And in that dreamlike moment between dreams and waking, Turner might tell her what he felt, might tell her that he would run with her, live for a time where there were no masters and servants, and wait for a time for her father's heart to cool. And she might say yes, he grinned, half drunk with the thought, hope, a kind hope. The padlock sprang open. Turner frowned. How had Smoker known the combination? Be still, Smoker whispered. He pulled open the locker. This time, Turner couldn't keep from gasping. Two repeater carbines, three revolvers, a bolt-action rifle with iron sights. More guns in one place than Turner had seen all his life. What are you doing? Turner whispered. Depends, Smoker said. He reached past the weapons and pulled a green-bound book from a near-invisible shelf at the back of the locker. Turner watched, mouth agape, as Smoker opened the book and thumbed through the pages. It was not a ledger. It was the written divine, a text passed down from Ole himself. The written divine explained how man had pushed back the storm and chaos of the world, and how, through service, mankind could rid themselves of the storm forever. Every page of a written divine showed a map of the globe. The globe was supposed to show the petricide gases that enveloped the entire southern hemisphere. An evil air that caused human beings pain so unfathomable that those who felt it would do almost anything to ease their pain. The atmosphere killed men. It only seemed to strengthen animals. But there was something strange about this book. There was red ink among the black. The red ink was nearly half the book, in fact, and the book looked twice as long as the normal written divine. Each page was supposed to show petricide gases being pushed back, making way for men to rule those lands now inhabited by giant beasts. He was right, Smoker said. Diamarcus knows of Luke. Everyone does, Turner said. Luke was the wolf that Ol rode. Smoker chuckled. It was a cold, humorless sound. Do you think so? He closed the book. Turner looked down at the book's cover. The book was not titled The Written Divine. Embossed on its front cover was a familiar title. The Hollow Fortress, Turner whispered. He looked away. We can't read that. We can't even look at it. It would mean death for whoever owned it, Smoker said. He made a clicking noise with his tongue. The bastard. He knows. The cover was dim in the strange light of the sky hearths. Turner could not help but read on. There was a subscript beneath the main title. A true telling of Earth's salvation. Smoker chuckled. He knows and pretends not to. Look, Turner said. His heart was warm again. It's your leverage. You could threaten the Dias. They'd have to let us go, now that we know about their book. I've seen this book before, Smoker said. I read it before you were born, before the war. Where do you think Marcus got the book from? Turner's heart began to sink again. So we were never going to spare them, Smoker continued. He blinked, and a tear fell from his good eye. I just wanted to see if he'd destroyed it. I just wanted to know I'd done the right thing. Done? Turner asked. Smoker lit... Smoker slid the book back into the locker. This is a true tale of Luke. The man's hateful voice rose above a whisper. They never would have let us go. They knew too much and did too little. Please, Turner said. Please spare them, or, or spare Eve at least. Turner looked toward Eve's room. Hope. You can't just kill them. Turner, Smoker said. They've been dead for hours. Turner felt something press against his stomach. He turned, slowly, to see the barrel of a large revolver pressed against his shirt. Chapter 4 Poison over dinner, Smoker said. He wasn't even pretending to lower his voice anymore. When I heard you praying, I thought I had to bring you here. Martha and Antonia are dead. Eve is dead. Smoker saw the question in Turner's eyes. The old man's face was so unused to its current grin that even Smoker's present joy looked pained and confused. Their father is a cruel man, but he's smart. He knows what the best punishment isn't death, but to live with some horrid wound. Smoker pointed to his scar. He called me Smoker, you see, because that's what my skin did when he doused me with lie. All for looking at his little book. I was property, after all. She might still be alive, Turner whispered. 
He wasn't concerned about waking the dudes anymore. He was whispering because he'd lost his breath. Please, let me see. Yeah, Smoker said. He bunched up his lips. Hmm. You know, I didn't want to kill you. But when you kill a boy's crush, you better kill the boy and kill the vengeance in the boy. Turner saw the banister behind Smoker. He saw the bright lights of the sky hearth. Maybe... No. Smoker would probably kill Turner just for flinching. Then another idea came to Turner's mind. She might still be alive, and if she's alive, you don't have to kill me. I... Smoker gave a thoughtful hum. You know, I haven't checked. There was room for error. Night harvest only makes you sick in small doses. Turner nodded. Oh, yeah, maybe you got it wrong. Wouldn't that be interesting? If Marcus thought his daughter was pregnant with a little peasant, he'd probably have to kill her himself. I... After all, your mother would probably want vengeance for you, too, and then somebody would want vengeance for her. Smoker sighed. Tell you what, let's check, just in case. Smoker gestured towards E's room with the revolver. Turner was slow and deliberate. He turned and moved toward the room where he would live or die. The army will come, Turner said. And that's where we're lucky. If the Redeemers or some other vigilante gets their hands on you, on us, for this... The Redeemers have nothing on who's coming, Smoker said. Turner was almost at Eve's door. Behind the door was possibility, death, or hope. Who? Turner asked. Justice is coming, Smoker hummed. Who's Justice? Justice is going to take us to the Hollow Fortress. You and me. Maybe Eve, if she wants you. Turner thought that either he or Smoker must have gone insane. The cook's answer didn't make any sense. Turner reached for a latch on Eve's door. He pulled it loose. An explosive noise filled the room. Light boomed against the door. I'm shot, Turner thought. He spun, backhanding Turner's right good eye. If I die, Turner thought, you die. There's your justice. Smoker stumbled back. He raised his gun and fired. The gun didn't make a sound, but something whizzed past Turner's ear. Turner suddenly realized what had happened. The sound and the light hadn't come from the gun. It had come, was still coming, in fact, from the hearthfall outside. A dozen lightning bolts, one after another, like the broadside of some massive warship. Had Turner been shot? He didn't care. Smoker was blinded off kilter. Turner didn't know if he was, Eve was dead. He didn't know if she was alive. All he knew was that Smoker had to die. You were right, Turner said. He closed, unsure of whether his voice surpassed the lightning, unsure if he cared to be heard. My mother taught me. Turner wrapped his left hand around Smoker's wrist. His right fist went to work on Smoker's liver. Sophia had taught Turner to punch through an object to keep going after fists met flesh and muscle and bone. Rage and fear multiplied that teaching. Again, again, Smoker was trying to hit Turner, but in all the wrong places. Smoker wasn't going for the killing blow. Smoker was trying to wound Turner, but Turner was beyond hurting. By the time they were back at the banister, Turner was winded and hurt. He pressed up against Smoker. The hearthfall had gone silent, and the man was screaming in Turner's ear, Wait! I can bring you to justice! He's insane, Turner thought. He leaned into Smoker. The balcony buckled and broke. The man and the boy fell together. Turner heard a crack through a haze of dream and slept. Chapter 5 Turner woke with the sun on his face. His first panic thought was that he'd be late for work. He tried to rise. His hand slipped on something wet. He fell on his elbow, and his elbow met a man's chest. It took Turner a moment to place himself in his surroundings. The man was smoker. The wet was blood. The chest was empty of breath. The dead man's eyes were open but unmoving. Blood circled his head like a halo. Turner wasn't sure what to call the emotion rising within him. He knew only that it wanted him to move. It took a surprising effort just to get to his knees. It took effort to stay upright. Turner breathed heavily, loud breaths, which seemed to calm his disoriented nerves. Before long, he was on his feet, moving. Without really knowing why or even choosing to do so, Turner headed upstairs. He felt like a leaf in a creek. He felt carried. The blood on his hands was sticky against the staircase railing, and then the railing and the stairs were gone, and he was back where he'd started in front of Dia Yu's door. 
Turner stared. Hope had once slept beyond this door. Turner felt a new sense of imbalance, one unrelated to his body in the physical world. His hand rose to the door, he pressed his red palm against the varnished wood and gave a gentle nudge. The door only opened a crack before Turner froze. The girl in the bed was a year of Turner Sr. Her head was pressed against her down pillow with her face turned away from the door. If she turned, she would see a bloody farmhand spying on her through a crack in her doorway. The stink in the room told Turner he needn't worry. He emerged through the massive front doors of the big house. Her body was heavy, her arms hung under her, swinging and bumping Turner's leg every so often. He'd never gone through those doors or touched Eve before, though he'd dreamed of doing so. Those dreams had come true in a way that made Turner feel guilty for ever dreaming them. The whole world was still. Turner would have expected a flurry of motion, a cry of general confusion and mayhem. Where were the mourners and the vigilantes? Did no one know that the Diaz were dead? He was at the end of the cobbled lane before he heard hoofbeats. They weren't coming from the dirt road ahead. Behind me, Turner thought, of course. The stables were next to the gardens. Turning, he saw a woman on a black mare, with the brown mare close behind. Only then, when it was too late, did Turner realize how strange he and Dia Eve must have looked. The rider slowed. Turner. Turner blinked. Faye? The older girl looked down in horror. Her hair was pulled back in a ponytail, a style reserved for unmarried peasants. What? Who is that? Turner opened his mouth to speak, but found himself short of breath. The world swam. He fell, and Dee's body rolled from his hands. He'd been trying not to look at the body. There were more effective poisons than night harvest, but... None were so readily available, and none more guaranteed to disfigure the body. Her blood had eaten through her skit like acid, leaving her body withered and cracked like a dry riverbed. Maybe it ate through her heart, Turner thought. Maybe there wasn't any pain. Divine above, Faye whispered. I saw you on top of Smoker. I thought you were both dead. Turner's eye went to Faye's belt. Two of the revolvers from the safe were tucked into her trousers. A rifle barrel poked up from the bedroll strapped to the brown horse's saddle, and something metal rattled in its saddlebag. Turner spoke with detached indignation. You're stealing. Just getting a head start, Faye said. There was something cold in her voice. Are you coming with me or not? Turner had to think about that. Dia Eve was gone. His whole reason for, for everything was gone. Without her, he had no direction. He would talk to Sophia. He, she would know what to do. I have to go home, Turner muttered. You don't have a home, Faye said. Yes, I do. Faye shook her head. She spoke without unclenching her jaw. You were supposed to be home last night. Faye looked at Eve and looked away with a blush. It seems like everything Smoker promised came untrue. Turner began an unsteady climb to his feet. You knew? His voice cracked. You killed them? No, Faye said. From the looks of you, Smoker lied to us both. She looked up toward the Grange and gave a frustrated sigh. I was going to switch horses to cover more distance. Ride with me down to your house and see what's happened. From there, you can decide whether or not to stay on the horse. Turner took a deep breath. He looked down at Eve. Don't, Faye said. If Marcus doesn't find her body, he'll never stop searching for her. Hope, Turner said. Yes, it's a cruel thing. It didn't feel right to leave the woman he loved on the cobblestones. But for D.A.U.'s sake, that's exactly what Turner did. Chapter 6 They passed home after home on the long road to Sophia's plot. There was a curious lack of activity in the fields. In the air, there were loud complaints from unmilked cows. The rustling of winter wheat had never seemed so loud. Where is everyone? Gone, Faye said. Turner shook his head. They can't just be gone. That was Smoker's only true promise. Faye's bitter tone penetrated the sound of hoofbeats and songbirds. During winter, every bird in the world seemed to flock to Kiresh. Turner noted another missing sound, the shotguns that occasionally peppered the air to frighten or destroy the flying vermin. Turner neared his home and picked up the pace. 
Once past the neat rows of his mother's garden, Turner urged his mount into a shortcut through the apple trees. At his one-room shack, Turner began to dismount before his horse came to a full stop. He rushed inside. At a glance, he knew something was wrong. Sophia's bed was unmade, a crime for which she'd scolded Turner at every opportunity. He moved toward the corner where Sophia's spinning wheel sat unattended. Already explanations failed him. A bag of loose wool sat near the wheel, removed from its bushel and not yet combed or spun. A job half done. Smoker claimed that they leave their own will, Faye said. Turner spun and locked eyes with the girl. He had always found her grim and aloof, even as a child. Her mother was a single woman who had gotten pregnant during the war. Like Turner, Faye was assumed to be the process of sexual assault by Oleg troops. Unlike Turner, Faye's mother had died giving birth. Faye was taken on as a living servant of the big house and had been given ample opportunity to lord her relative status over uncultured boys like Turner. What do you know? Turner asked. Why do you know it? It's the sky hearth. The sustained current. You know it's been disappearing, people. Stories. And Smoker knew when. He knew that everyone would disappear last night. It's impossible. It was impossible. That's why I didn't believe him. She had an effortless way of expressing disdain. But that same disdain disappeared around her social betters. These contradictory dispositions led people on the Grange to call Faye faces and false Faye behind her back. Turner groaned and continued searching the room. There's two things my mother wouldn't leave behind. Loose wool and me. All I know is that when justice sweeps through a place, all the servant types leave. Every single one. Faye strode idly through the room, her riding boots scruffing against the clay ford tiles. On that, Smoker and Marcus agreed. And they didn't agree on which way was up or down, you know. Justice? That's what Smoker called him. Present circumstances aside, Turner would have laughed. Bring you to justice, Smoker had said. Whose justice sounded a lot like whose justice. Though even clarity wouldn't have made Turner understand Smoker's meaning. He still didn't understand. Why didn't you and I leave? Turner asked. Don't know. Maybe because I sleep in the big house, Faye said. She grinned. So did you, for a night. So why are you leaving now? Because anyone the Redeemers find left is going to be live feed for their animals. They... I had no reason to kill those girls. Faye rolled her eyes. Come now. You were always making eyes at that girl who never made eyes at you. Faye's condescension had been eating at Turner all his life. Now, in the midst of tragedy and mystery, it was too much. It didn't help that Faye spoke the truth. Turner marched across the room until he was almost nose-to-nose with the older girl. And he noted, with some satisfaction, that he had at least an inch on her. My mother told me she'd beat me to sleep if I ever so much as yanked a girl's ear. But for some reason, my mother's not here. A flash of emotion passed over Faye's eyes. In a moment, she was back to her dismissive scowl. Of course you'd be scared of her, you feet little dear wannabe. Tell me where she is. Nobody knows. Then what in the name of the first divine are we supposed to do? The me part of we is going to run like a wolf on fire, Faye sneered. For all I care, you can stay here and let the redeemers do to you what that wolf rider did to your mother. Turner wanted to hit her, same as he had hit Smoker. He did what felt merciful and spat in her eyes. In a quarter of a second, Turner was looking down the angry end of Faye's revolver. The two locked eyes. Faye trembled with rage, shaking loose a glob of spit from the edge of her nose. You gonna kill again, Faces? Faye rubbed the spit from the bridge of her nose. I didn't kill anybody. She ran her finger over the gun's trigger guard. If I was gonna kill anybody, I'd do it when I could steal Marcus's wolf. The idea of Faye riding on Diamarcus's white wolf made Turner want to laugh. With a frustrated groan, she holstered her weapon and made for the door. Only then did Turner realize that his only source of information was about to ride away. Turner followed the girl outside where she tied the horses to an apple branch. You said you'd explain, he said. You know more than you're saying. And I'm not saying any more. Faye took the jangling satterbags from the brown horse and swung them over the black. Aren't we leaving? Turner asked. Yeah, 
Faye pulled herself under the saddle with practiced ease. In different directions. Wait. Faye bared her teeth. She gave a songbird whistle without moving her lips, and her black horse galloped into the trees. Turner cursed. He looked at the brown mare. He should try to give her chase. As much as he disliked her, Faye was the only one who had any idea of what was happening here. No, Turner thought. Not the only one. The wolf rider, he whispered. He dashed back through the still open door. His mother was a creature of habit. Every day she'd make her bed despite only having two thin blankets. Every day she'd make a spindle of thread before the house got warm in the afternoon. And at sunset every day, Sophia would pull a book from under her mattress, unlock it, and write. Sophia had grown up in the days where teaching a slave to read and write was punishable by hanging. The punishment for a slave learning to read and write was much, much worse. Had Sophia's hidden book been found, every word would have been carved into her flesh until the torture ran out of either words or blood. You said I could read it, Turner whispered. He lifted the mattress. You said I could, once you were gone. There it was, a leather-bound journal, held up from the floor by a web of tightened ropes that was her bed frame. Turner's heart rose, then sank again. If Sophia had left this behind, she couldn't have left of her own volition. Sophia and Dia Eve were gone. One was dead. There was hope of finding the other. A slim, terrible hope. He felt electricity on the book's spine. This, this was his hope of finding more. He had a new purpose. With this book, he could find his father. With his father, anything was possible. Recovering Sophia, putting his learning to use, being something other than a sharecropper and surf. He picked up the book. It had a lock fastener that he'd always been too afraid to break. But now, as his hand inched toward the clasp, he heard two cries on the wind. The first noise was the sound of his winning horse. The second was a deep roar that seemed to echo from every direction at once. Turner dashed outside. He ran to his horse and tried to comfort the snorting animal. Quiet, Turner hissed, as if that would do him any good. He heard voices shouting from the nearest road. I don't reckon to kill you, said an unfriendly male voice, despite what my cat contends. To Turner's surprise, he heard Faye's voice in response. And I don't want to kill the big cat either. The man spoke in a middling dialect, neither noble nor peasant. If revolvers could kill him, he would not have been brought. Turner didn't know what kind of cat could stand up to a dozen bullets, but he didn't want to find out. He looked in the opposite direction of the voices. He knew his way out of the apple grove. Faye had wanted to ride in different directions, hadn't she? Faye called out in a loud voice. It's just you and me. She was speaking louder than was strictly necessary, Turner realized. In a long enough race, a horse would win. Not with all that cargo you have got. Indeed. Turner cursed. He mounted the brown and took a deep breath. Faye was giving him instructions again. He didn't know if he liked that, but he liked less the idea of having another person's death on his mind. So, said the man, shall you come to me, or I to you? Turner kicked at the horse's sides. He had to steer against her instincts, toward the road and toward the rumbling growl. He pressed himself tight into the saddle and stirrups, cursing all the way. He shot from the trees at a full gallop. When he crossed between Faye and her adversary, he let forth a shout that was driven partly by fear. Come to me if you can. He kept the horse at a gallop, though the horse needed little encouragement. He looked back. The man, as expected, was a redeemer, dressed in black plate and chain mail. Beneath his salad helmet was a white mask, frozen in an eerie, toothless grin. His lower half, and the mount he rode, was obscured in the winter wheat. The mask shifted to follow Turner. The man began to move. Turner's gambit had paid off. Big cats had an instinct to chase anything that moved, so what burst from the wheat had been equipped with blinders and lenses to narrow its vision. Turner had crossed the cat's vision, and the cat was on the move. It was no mere cat. The creature running away with its rider and gaining on Turner had a distinctive mane and a heart-shaking roar. Turner cursed. Over a long enough distance, his horse was faster. Over this short distance, the odds favored the lion. Turner had read about lions before. He was halfway through the letter L in his encyclopedia, in fact. He'd always been dismissive of cat mounts. 
The very thing that made them superior predators were hobbled by domestication. A cat ratter had to worry about restricting its cat's vision and killing instinct. Manipulating a cat's whiskers and eyes gave a rider a certain level of control, but pulling too hard risked turning the cat against his master. Something about being chased by a lion caused Turner to reevaluate cat mounts, namely in how much they made Turner want to piss himself. Battle mounts were often bred larger and faster than their wild brethren. Lions from the petricide mist needed little help in this regard. The lion was nearly as tall as Turner's horse and its strides nearly as long. If both mounts sprinted, Turner would be up close and personal with the lion's fangs in under ten seconds. Turner had felt time slow before, but he'd never before that moment felt time expand. Panic scattered that moment over Turner's memory so that it never seemed to begin or end. The rider abandoned any attempt to restrain his beast. Instead, the black-armored figure reached for his own revolver. Even two-on-one, even without a lion, a fully-kitted redeemer had a clear advantage on unarmored peasants. Here, in a fallow field, the redeemer was nearly invincible. The lion was almost on top of Turner's brown horse. Both animals were breathing hard already. Turner heard a gunshot, then another. The lion flinched. It looked like Faye was doing her part to delay the lion, but the Redeemer had been right about the impotent power of her guns. But Faye didn't need to kill the lion. She only needed to buy Turner enough time to act. Turner pulled his boots from his stirrups. The lion had its claws out, but its haunches bore up for a final leap. There was no time for grace. Turner swung his leg over the saddle and pushed off. He tumbled. His body met the ground spinning. That didn't stop the dirt knocking the wind from his lungs. Turner's world rocked like a boat in a storm. He tried to get up but stumbled. The lion had its claws in the horse's rump. Turner watched with a mix of horror and awe as the cat brought its full weight down on the horse, dragging it to the untilled soil in a cloud of dirt and flying limbs. More shots rang out. There were more hoofbeats. More redeemers? Turner looked up. It didn't make any sense. Faye's horse wasn't running away from the carnage. It was, against all logic, charging straight toward the fray. The man in black armor climbed off of his writhing beast. As he did so, a bullet sparked off his shoulder plate. The white, laughing mask seemed to mock Faye as she came upon him, emptying her barrels at man and mount alike. The Redeemer leveled his gun, but his shot came too late. The Redeemer bounced off the black horse's chest. He spun like a top as he fell. His gun pinioned through the air. By some divine providence, it landed two steps away from Turner. The second horse fell with a scream. Faye cried out in pain. Turner crawled through the dirt, stung by the stubble of past harvest. His hand closed around the Redeemer's revolver. He'd never touched a gun before last night, and even then it hadn't been the side with the trigger. The Redeemer rose to one knee and looked around in panic. The lion was panting, wrestling with the two horses with its bloodied claws. Turner leveled the revolver and fired. The trigger was lighter than he would have expected. He shot once, twice, three times. He paused. The Redeemer looked down at his untouched body and laughed. Peasants with guns, he said. May divines grant us an up. Behind the Redeemer, the lion collapsed with a fearful groan. The Redeemer turned. Even his laughing mask couldn't hide his shock. Turner had missed his target. By luck, Turner had hit the beast. With the Redeemer turned in the opposite direction, Faye had the luxury of time. She leveled her revolver. There was a crack and a wet, thudding noise. The Redeemer looked back toward Turner. Some red mass of flesh and bone drooped beneath the white, grinning mask. It began to twitch like a squished insect. Turner leveled his gun again. Then he thought better of firing. He had two shots left. Faye watched, panting, as Turner approached the bloody mess in the field. The horses were still writhing in pain. Turner used one bullet on each horse. Faye crawled to her feet. Together, they listened to the man's last blood-choked breaths. What now? Turner asked. We'll need new horses, Faye replied. The Redeemer was silent. In the silence, they heard more shouts and more horses. Correction, Faye said. We'll need to run. Okay, that was part one of a four-part free audiobook. If you liked it, please tune in tomorrow where we release the second part. If you are listening to this in the far and distant future, um, please like 
share and uh, subscribe to this podcast wherever you found it. And um, please, yeah, just just uh, help me spread this around. I think it's a fun, free book, and uh, I'd love for as many people to be able to enjoy this in a time of crisis as is humanly possible. And straight up, it's just kind of a hard time to be a writer out there. So uh, whether it's my thing or somebody else's thing, um, just go ahead and uh, support your artists, you know, support your um, people who give you escapist fantasy or uh, other types of fiction in a time like this. And uh, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll look out for you on the next one. See you then. Bye-bye.